morning. Uh, as always, I'm very thankful to be able to worship and share God's word. Uh, if you're new or if you're visiting, we want to welcome you again. It's a good time to be visiting. Lots of things that are uh, to look forward to, including the welcoming lunch, which I am looking forward to meeting some of you there. And if you don't know me, my name is Sam. I am part of the pastoral staff. Uh, for those who are going to the welcoming lunch, uh, if you didn't sign up, it is a little bit of a walk. So after worship, uh, find either someone at our uh, welcoming booth or there should be a couple people pointing you the way. And it's just on the other side of campus. And so that's just FYI, it's a little bit of a walk. So just please do keep that in mind. Now, if you're just joining us, uh, we've been going through a short three-week series that we started two weeks ago uh, titled Life with God. And the reason that as a pastoral staff we thought this would be a good series to kick off basically our calendar year uh, is because for a lot of us, we often relate to God in ways that aren't quite in line with how the scriptures say God wants to relate with us. Uh, just to recap and review, uh, some of the categories that Pastor Tom brought up I thought were helpful. Uh, and it's been very challenging for me to see how in maybe I need to correct even my view in relationship with God. But one of them is that some of us, we live under God. And what that means is that we basically live with God as a high and mighty distant deity. And so we obey him, we follow him, uh, we take orders from him, but we don't necessarily feel close to him. It's a burden almost because we feel like we always need to measure up to what it means to be a good Christian. Others of us, uh, we live life over God where God is cool. We like what Christian values are. Uh, some parents I meet where they're not Christian but they just like going to church. They like taking their kids to church because they like the morals of Christianity. They like the community and the vibe of it. But their spiritual walk with God is non-existent. It's just an impersonal thing. It's just a good thing to have into your life. And lastly, a lot of us live for God which is where Christianity is ultimately defined by your action and your service. So these are the people who, hey, what does a faithful life with God look like? It looks like mission trips. It looks like service. And the way that you've known you've kind of fallen into this is you're constantly burnt out. You don't really enjoy your relationship with God. Uh, church has become more of a burden in that sense. And so I thought Pastor Tom did a great job. If you didn't listen to it, I encourage you, uh, please do listen to it as it was very, very helpful. But basically, I think a biblical case was made that not under, not over, or not for, but the, Bi the Bible paints the picture of a God who primarily wants to be with us, be with his people. Or to put it another way, God wants to be in relationship. Right? You might have heard that before. Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship. He wants to commune with us. Right? And later we're going to be celebrating communion and that's the heart of what it is. God wants to be in fellowship with us. And when things get in the way of that, he wants to provide ways for us to bridge that gap. And the primary reason why God wants to be in relationship with us, according to the Bible, is because he loves us. Now, uh, for me, growing up in more of an Asian culture, it's very uncomfortable to think about love, right? It's, I've, I think I'm, when it comes to intimacy, I'm a white belt, <laughs> both in giving and receiving it. So when somebody says, I love you, I kind of just cringe. I don't really know what to do. It's like a muscle I've never used. But as we close out this short series on living a life with God, I want to show us from our text today that a life with God is absolutely rooted in a deep understanding conviction of the love of God in particular. That there's a direct correlation to you understanding and fully drinking deep and believing in the fact that God loves you and that he wants to be with you. 
I think they are two sides of the same coin. So if you have your Bibles or your programs, turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be reading from verse 7 to 12 and then 19 to 21. And as we've been doing a new practice at our church, as we open God's word, uh, we believe at our church that God is present and that he particularly speaks through his word and that his word is authoritative. So as we turn there, in light of that, if we could all rise actually uh, as we go into a time of reading God's word. I will read the text for us, you know, pray for us while we're still standing, and then we will get into the message. So 1 John chapter 4, starting from verse 7, this is the reading of God's word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Amen. Let me pray for us before we get into the message. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living, active. It is clear that it exposes us. And so we pray, Lord, that it would encourage and challenge us and remind us of how great you are but how great your love is in the gospel. So be with us during this time. May your spirit move and work. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So like many of us in this room, I'm sure, I love coffee. I would consider myself a mild coffee snob uh, because I value and I appreciate good coffee. Uh, I'm blessed to live so close to an amazing coffee shop that a lot of our church people go to. It's called Stereoscope Coffee. Uh, I've lived there for many years. Uh, some people drive really far to get there. I just take a right turn and I'm there. And so it's great. A lot of us are familiar with it. So uh, as I confess, don't be disappointed. I've been drinking a lot more Starbucks these days, <laughs> right? I feel like I'm committing a sin. And the reason is not because the coffee ultimately. It's actually out of convenience. Starbucks' marketing is genius. They know they can't compete. So what they do is they brand their drive through Right? I don't know if you know, literally all the new Starbucks is Starbucks drive through And I'm a creature of convenience. It's so easy. It's so efficient. It's so smooth. So if Stereoscope's line's too long, I just find myself going to Starbucks. And as I was waiting in the Starbucks drive through line the other day and preparing this message, I was reminded of this pretty well-known story that came out in the news a couple years back. And it was about this idea that people were buying each other drinks in the drive through line. I don't know if you guys heard it before. I looked up the article, and the article was titled... Uh, Quote, nearly 400 people pay it forward at St. Petersburg Starbucks. If you didn't, if you didn't hear about it, uh, basically the story goes that someone at 7 a.m. in the morning decided out of the kindness of their heart, hey, I'm not only going to pay for my drink, I'm going to pay for the drink of the person behind me. So they bought their drink, the person got to the window, and the barista said, your drink's already been paid for. Do you want to pay it forward? Do you want to return the favor? And lo and behold, this created this kind of chain of kindness where they were constantly paying for each other's drinks throughout the day. And it got to the point where baristas were taking bets whether or not it would go to the end of the day. And they said that it went from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m., almost 12 hours. And it ended with customer number 379. And according to the barista, it's because the woman didn't understand the concept of paying it forward. So it wasn't because she's an evil person. She just didn't get it. And so she's like, uh, I'm just going to pay for my coffee. And then it ended. 
Now, that story always fascinated me. Right? I'm always intrigued when I think about not necessarily just Christian stuff in particular, but like why humans act the way humans do. Because I do think we're all created in the image of God. And I don't think too deeply about this analogy, but I share this to illustrate the simple reality that I think we can all agree with. And it's pretty universally true. It's a lot easier to give if you first receive. Amen? Like that's, that's what's going on here, right? When, you, when you're paying it forward, it's because you've received and now you have some sort of deposit that you're able to give more freely. That's the equation in a lot of life. For example, if you receive good service, it's easy to give good tip because you receive something. If you first receive an apology from someone, it's a lot easier to give them forgiveness. And we naturally operate of a received and give mentality. I think it's ingrained in our human nature. But if somebody asks you to give when you haven't received, you'd probably ask for an explanation. What am I giving for? Why should I give? Now, you, using the picture of a drive-through, right? Imagine every Sunday we're, we're driving through, spiritually speaking, into our text today. And, and our, the Holy Spirit looks at you today through God's word. And his clear call is, hey, today the call is you are to give. And the giving is not monetary or even your service, but it's the currency of love. Relational currency of love. The question you should ask is, so what have I received that I should give? Why should I give? In fact, in our text alone, they called the apostle John the apostle of love because he talks about it so much. He repeats the command to love three times. And here's the primary argument he gives and how it ties to our series. John says, if God really lives within you and dwells within you, the primary evidence of his dwelling in your heart will be the fruit of love. That's John's case. And the whole premise of John's argument for Christian love is that we are liberated to give love freely and generously because we have first received generously from God. That order is of utmost importance. And when you forget that order, you start to question, why should I love? So for today's message, we're going to break down John's explanation of Christian love in three ways from the text. The first is, so what is the origin of Christian love? Where does it even come from? And I think that's a healthy question to ask whether you're Christian or not. Like, where do you get your definition and basis of love? Two, the powerful witness of Christian love. And thirdly, the greatest display of Christian love. And my hope from the get-go at the end of the message is that for Christians, if you're sitting here today, to have a renewed conviction, to put light on how you're doing when it comes to love and to grow in your love for others and see that as a priority. But if you're not a Christian, to get a rationale of Christian love. I think everybody understands Christians are supposed to love the golden rule, but not many people do a deep dive to understand why Christian love is so powerful and if they are, say, even beautiful. So that's the hope. Number one, the origin. Uh, there are very few words that are more unhelpful in the English language than the word love. It is the most layered, complex, nuanced word, but we only have one word for it, right? In the same paragraph, I can use the word love to say I love my wife, I love my family, I love pho, I love the Lakers, I love my friends, I love good furniture, I love Muji, and I love uh, nice weather, same thing, same word, but we all understand I'm talking about different things here. It's not the same type of love that I'm talking about. So English needs to work on different words, in my opinion. So it's helpful to know at least the Greeks had a better idea, right? They understood there's categories of love. There were different words for love. And so John, he specifically uses a word called agape. Okay, you might have heard this before. It is kind of Christianese, but let me kind of 
talk about why it's important. In 1 John 4 alone, every time you see the word love, he uses that word agape. And in that chapter, it comes out 30 times. 30 times. That's a lot. Okay. And the simplest definition of the word agape is that it refers to God's love. For, for non-Christians back in the ancient world, agape referred to the love of the gods. It's this otherworldly, not innately human form of love. And for Christians, agape refers to the unconditional, sacrificial love that comes from God himself. And so using that word agape, look at verse 7 to 8. Here's what he says. He says, beloved, let us agape one another, for agape is from God. And whoever agape has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not agape does not know God, because God is agape. Now there is a simple yet profound logic that John is using here. And uh, it might get a little heady, but please track with me because I personally believe certain doctrines, if you just are patient, it's so worth it and it's so beautiful. So you see, when you become a Christian according to John, particularly in John's gospel, to become a Christian does not mean you change your behavior or you look different on the outside or that your worldview is now altered. A lot of us who were raised in the church, that's what Christianity was. You stop doing this, you start doing this, and you're a Christian. But no, 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 that's not what John says. When John, in, somebody asks Jesus, what does it mean to be, become a Christian? Jesus responds, you, you are born again. You're an altogether from the very fabric of your DNA and being a new creation. A lot of babies are being born. I have two sons. Uh, I experienced something I'll never experience ever outside uh, in the delivery room when I saw a child come into the world. And literally he was born with DNA, flesh and everything. And spiritually speaking, though it's pretty gruesome to think about, that's literally what happens when you're a Christian. You are a new creation. Whoever you were before in your desires and your makeup, it's gone. It is past. And you are altogether a new creation, a new nature. And that's where Pastor Tom brought up the idea, now you are united with Christ. You have union with him. And why is this important? What's happening in the text is that love is not just something God does. It's not just that God shows love or is loving. Love is fundamental to who God is in his nature. So then, becoming a Christian is not just a decision to now adhere to the things that Jesus did. But it's much deeper than that. It is to be united to him and with him so that who he is in his nature now becomes imprinted onto us. That's what's going on here. So what John is saying is agape love, it is embedded within the very character and nature of God. And therefore to be a child of God by definition is to have that same love imparted to your nature. Now let me show you a visual because I'm sure it's hard to track with me. Here's his logic. First is, and it's from the text, God is love. It's in there, right? Now there's a lot that can be said there. It's not, he's not just love. He's many other things. But one very important part of his nature is that he's love. Secondly, John argues, those who have been born of God and know God are now God's children. Born again. Brought into his family. Three, by virtue of that, God's children have received God's nature. And fourthly, therefore, God's children, therefore, will love. I took logic in college. That was the extent of how far I got. Logic is really complicated. But this much I can know, right? It's kind of like A plus B equals C. That's what's going on here. In other words, as Christians, the call to love, it's not just an imitation of God's love. It is in union with him, we are receiving and experiencing the love of God. 
And out of that union and experience, extending it out. That's why some of us, if we don't get that, our understanding of what it means to be loving will always fall short. In verse 12, this is the key we see. He says, if we love one another, God abides in us, lives in us, and his love, not our love, is perfected in us. Uh, you've heard many messages, I'm sure. You need to be more loving. You should love. You need to love your enemies. And this is precisely why I think a lot of us struggle with love a lot of times. Because remember, by definition, agape love is otherworldly, meaning you are not naturally agape loving. Because you are not God. It is not within human nature to have the capacity to love in this way. And so let me give one practical food for thought here, okay? When you struggle to love someone, what is your typical approach and solution? Here's what mine is. Here's what I say. I preach to myself and say, Sam, you don't like this person right now. Be more loving. God is calling you to love. You know what type of relationship that is to God, using this series as an example? That's life under God. Why? Because God's weight and command to love is now this heavy burden that you feel like, I'm not as loving as I should be as a Christian. I'm not measuring up to what it means to be a Christian. God probably is very upset with me. You feel this perpetual guilt and burden that you're not good enough. But here's something very fascinating that comes a couple verses later. In 1 John 5, 3, look what John says. He says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. This totally destroys the framework of life under God. Because it's showing that in union with Christ, when you really understand what it means to tap into the power of God dwelling within you, it is not a burden to live in that way. So then what is the alternative? If the origin and source of agape love is God and not us, the first solution is to be humble enough to recognize you're not a loving person. By saying... I just got to love better, you're fundamentally misunderstanding that you cannot do what you are being asked to do. You can't. That's why the first step begins with the humility to say, Heavenly Father, I am not capable to do the agape love you are calling me to do to represent who you are. So I need you in your love to work and move through me so that your love manifests through me and is not mine. So when we love what agape love, we're not giving of ourselves. We are giving out of the very love of God that is shared with us and with us in Christ. That's what it means that Christ dwells within you. You can tap into something that is outside of this world. And that's the origin of Christian love. God himself. And it should influence the character of the Christian at the deepest level. Not just behavioral. Not just what you do on the outside. Because the God who is love dwells within you. Which leads to the second part of John's explanation, the powerful witness of Christian love. Now, some of these illustrations, you might think, like, where did you get this? I ask the same thing, right? Sometimes when you sermon prep and you read commentaries, like, the strangest facts come out. So I learned an interesting Snapple fact. So there's a islands called the Aran Islands off the west coast of Ireland, okay? I don't know it. I've never been there. But interesting fact about it is they're, I guess they're really known for their beautiful sweaters. So their sweaters are known because they're, they're worn with this special sheep's wool and they kind of uniquely, specially craft all these garments. And what's special about them is how personal they are. The closest modern day example I can think of is kind of like a letterman jacket, but a little, even more deeper than that. And so basically they talk about how each family on the island has their own trademark pattern that is so distinct and unique that if they were to drown and a fisherman got their uh, sweater, 
they would be able to identify them simply by looking at the sweater. They would know which family they came from. Now, using that illustration, uh, I think it's actually very helpful to know that one of the things that the Bible says is to put on love. So, what is the trademark pattern of the Christian supposed to be in that same analogy? It's good to be faithful. It's good to serve. It's good to be disciplined. But John over and over and over says the trademark and identifying mark of God's people is the love that we have for each other. The love. John says repeatedly, love one another. New commandment I give that you love each other. How will people know that you're Jesus followers, that the love that you have? Jesus himself, when asked what's the greatest commandment, it's to love, to love God, to love others. And in verse 11 to 12, we see him say, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. For no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, though, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, this is massive. This implication of what John is saying here is, is giving you clarity to how do you know if God is present. Because as a pastor, we did a series a couple years ago on the, the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation talks about there's some churches that look really good, that look really faithful, that smell like Christianity, but the Spirit's not even there. That Jesus isn't even there. And as a pastor, that terrifies me. Why? Because the very most important thing that we want to be as a Christian church is that Christ is dwelling and present. And so I remember growing up, that idea fascinated me, right? Because no one has seen God. So it always like, how do I know God is here? And I've seen some weird explanations, right? I've been to the charismatic camp. I've been to the very conservative camp. And some of the responses I would get is, I remember pastors, they talk about it in a more like mystical, kooky way. So they'd say, you know how the spirit is here? Uh, it's just kind of like this vibe and feeling that you get. You just kind of sense that he's here. And I remember at the last night of a retreat, I was like, I think God is here. Here's the problem. God was only here one time out of the year. <laughs> so for 364 days, I'm like, where is God? And then I would go to the retreat, I'm like, God is here. So that's limiting. That does not work theologically speaking for a God who's dwelling with you constantly. Others would say, you know what is the evidence of proof of God's presence? It's miracles. It is uh, miraculous answered prayers. And I've seen some crazy things back in my day and heard some crazy things. Now, as nice as those things are, it is kind of remarkable how ordinary the evidence of God's presence is, according to John. Do you want to know if God is present and working within a body of believers and within a church? Step into the doors, step into the community. Is there a culture, practice, and presence of God's love? That is literally the single barometer, according to John. Because where God is present and working, there will be an experience and evidence of his love. And this is where it starts to come full circle. Because the apostle Paul actually says a very similar thing in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, you can be the most gifted, you can be the most serving, you can literally speak in angelic tongues. In fact, you can even sacrifice your love with someone and sacrifice your life for someone. But if there's no love, it is actually spiritually useless. Meaning the spirit is not present. Now there's an important detail in the end of verse 12 that I want to highlight in light of this. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now that word perfect, it is somewhat traumatic, I know, for a lot of us. When we think perfect, we think of things like uh, reaching a certain standard or taking tests. As you can see, I'm kind of oozing out my framework of life under God. <laughs> it's all about perfect means I have to like become this kind of perfect Christian. That's not what perfect means. The word perfect actually carries the idea of something being complete. 
are mature. So a cheesiest illustration for me when I get a bowl of pho, it's not perfect. I have to add sriracha, I have to add hoisin sauce, I have to add some onions, cilantro, mix it all, add some lime, and now it is perfect. What do I mean by that? It is complete. <laughs> it has reached its intended end. And so for something to be perfect, it means that it is brought to its intended end. So with that definition, ask yourself, what is the image of a perfect Christian? Someone who has come to their completed end as God desires. John would say, the way you know that someone has been abiding in Christ and walking with God and not just for him is quite simply the way they have displayed and have grown in love. So agape love that originates from God serves as a powerful witness for people to see and experience God through his people. And this is where I did some really, really deep thinking because if you see all the polls about what turns people away from Christianity in the church, it is never theology, it is rarely doctrine, it is rarely the programs of the church, it is always, always, always a deficiency to practice what Jesus says will attract people to the church, which is agape love. Some of you guys are new. You won't know it. You might think it's otherwise. But what will draw you to the community of Christ will be the presence of God's love. And what will turn you away is the hypocrisy of its non-existence. And so my hope and prayer for Grace Hill in this season more than ever is that we can be a place where the love of God is genuinely experienced first and foremost as Christians. And from that flown out, shared, and extended to one another. Now with that being said, what does this love actually look like though? What is the greatest example and display of Christian love? Which is point number three. Uh, I remember when I first confessed my love for my wife, Angela, over 10 years ago. It seems like so long ago now. Uh, the first time I did it was online. <laughs> it was through iChat. So I had to redo it. So I redid it at Tasty in Cerritos, okay. So the first one was a fake one, but I did it again. And so I said, hey, um, I actually said I like you at the time, right. But basically that was my version of saying, hey, I think I really like you. I love you. And she didn't say, oh, thank you so much. She said, oh, really? How do you know? How do you know you like me? How do you know? And I was like so just caught like a deer in headlights. I was like, what do you mean how do I know? I just know, right? And she was like, no, like what do you mean? You could be just saying that. How do I know you really love me? And that is from that moment on I realized, oh, wow, saying you love is very shallow. <laughs> it doesn't really mean much. In fact, it is one of the most dangerous things to just throw around if it's not backed up. So to say you love something or someone is an altogether different thing than to make it weighty by actually backing it up and proving that love, right? So that being said, what we see highlighted in verse 9 to 10 is, in my opinion, one of the simplest yet clearest description of how you are to know that God loves you. That's actually why John wrote the letter. He said, I write this letter to let you know and be assured that you are saved and God loves you. Now I'm going to read it because in a sense it is the gospel explained, verse 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now we need to pay careful attention here because John two times says, in this is love. You know what he's saying? He's saying, what I'm explaining to you now is how you literally see the love of God manifest. In this is love. 
That's like me telling Angela, how do I know I love you? In this is love. I saved up all my poor pastoral wages and salaries, bought you the biggest diamond I could. It's still not that big, but in that is love, right? So he's saying, how do you know that God agape loves you? Here's how. Now, there's a couple of things I want to highlight. And let me tell you, this is pure gospel. And as a pastor preacher in this day and age, the temptation is always gospel is boring. People know gospel. And then I was so rebuked because I realized, you know what's going to get the spirit moving and working? It is the boring gospel. Because that is what we need the most. And so first and foremost, what does it show? It says, God doesn't just say he loves us, but he proves it. And his love is manifested, a.k.a. revealed or made clear in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, this is important. Because a lot of us know God sent Jesus. We sing songs about it. We hear about it. But I think what is explicit in this text, it shows, is the primary motivation behind God's sending of Jesus was his love. God could have sent Jesus out of obligation. He could have done it just out of his sheer nature of being a just God who thinks it's the right thing to do. But it says here, it is out of love that God sent Jesus. Second, it says the reason he sent Jesus was so that you and I might live through him. We often hear he sent Jesus to die on the cross, to forgive our sins. It's very judicial in language, but that's not what it says here. He says he sent Jesus that we might live through him, with him, union with him. And this is significant because guess what? The story of the Bible is that God created us to have life and thrive. Uh, my son Ezra, he kind of has like self-destructive behavior sometimes. So when he gets frustrated or angry, we're trying to teach him how to live a healthy and thriving life. So when he does something good, we'll compliment him and we'll applaud him. But when he gets really angry, he starts banging his head on the floor. Now what do we do as loving parents? That pains us greatly. So we say stop. Why? Because that is self-destructive behavior. It's something that we want him to put an end to. It's something that will not lead to thriving. It will lead to destruction. And so in that same way, the gospel narrative of the scripture is that God created us to thrive, to be in relationship with him. And this is why it makes sense that God promised if you sin, you will die. Ephesians says we are dead in our trespasses. We feel alive. We're moving, working, and kicking. But how is the state of your soul? I'm guessing it's self-destructing in a lot of ways. A lot of us pick up self-destructive behaviors in this life without God. So when we sinned and turned away from God, spiritually speaking, we became dead. And in order for us to now have life, God had to send his only son Jesus to this fancy word here, which I'll describe, to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, this is a theological term, but it's actually very simple. Propitiation simply means to take the punishment. Take the punishment. So let's say our brother Shim here, right, he does something terrible and he crashes the tundra and he needs to pay for it or he, he's going to get judgment for it. For me to be propitiation for him means like, hey, I'll take the judgment, I'll take the punishment, I'll take the wrath from Pastor Tom, you're all good, right? I'll take it for you. Very, very simple illustration. And so for God to send his only son Jesus to be the propitiation means that he takes our judgment, he takes our punishment that we deserved. And this is where, again, we need to be once again awed by the fact that God sent his only son, Christ the king, to be, die a criminal's death. Creator became the created, died for his creation. 
And again, I think the kicker behind all of this, which was the first point, is there was zero obligation to do this. He did not have to do this. God would have been righteously sitting on his throne if he had judged us all with his full wrath. And so this is where it makes me uncomfortable to use this language, but God did not need to send Christ. He wanted to. He does not need you. He wants you. And we forget that. Makes us uncomfortable. Now, I find it interesting that the main angle John takes to define the love of God is particularly in the act of him sending his son Jesus into the world. Did you guys catch that? Like there's so many ways you can describe the gospel. Like it could have been in this is love that God, that Jesus died on the cross. Or in this is love that God forgives us of our sins. But why emphasize not once but twice that the apex of displaying the love of God is in God sending his one and only son. And I took some long time to meditate on this. And I think the reason that we think why that is because we fail to realize how much the Father God loves his only son. When we hear the Father sent his son Christ, big deal. Yeah, that's the gospel. Do you realize all eternity, the Father and the Son, loving fellowship, never to be broken, union together. I have the tiniest glimpse of this is what is like a father. Uh, and I, there's like no way to describe, I think, the love that I have for Ezra and Zach, my sons. Like when Ezra gets hurt, I'm not naturally an emotional person, but it like pains me. It deeply pains me. Like when he hits his head and he gets like red marks and stuff, it like makes me feel very, very uncomfortable. When Ezra's sick, I feel so helpless. I would take his sickness in a heartbeat if I could. And one of the most brutal times for me as a father is when I have to take him to get his shots, Right? So we go take his shots, and that's hard enough. But then as he's getting his shot, the nurse, right, she's like, you hold him down, right? So I'm like, what? So I'm holding Ezra down as he's crying, screaming, looking at me all confused, like, what are you doing, Father? And I feel this deep sense of pain. Why? Because I love my son so much. And that is just a minuscule grain of sand in the endless oceans of what it means for God the Father to love his only son, Jesus Christ. He loves Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes into the world, the heavens open up. God doesn't speak much, but one time he does speak. It's, this is my son, whom I am well pleased. I love him. And I can't help but wonder if through his word, God wants to see, he wants us to see the heart of the father. How much it pained him. You see, we're so self-centered sometimes that the gospel is about us. My Savior. My sins being forgiven. And we don't see the cosmic reality of, wow, do you realize in the gospel the Father sent his Son to die? That we are just a small part of the greater cosmic gospel picture. And because of that historic revelation of God's initiating sacrificial unconditional love, I can say to you today the most powerful, confident statement that God loves you. The heavenly father loves you. And it's almost as if John realized, oh, I don't think they're going to get it. So he said, let me add something. He so loves you. <laughs> right? That's what it says. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. John uh, uh, verse 11, he so loves you. And this is a term that I'm trying to embrace more in my vocabulary, what it means to be a Christian. But notice the very first word that John gives in this text that we read is actually the rationale for everything of what we do as Christians. Is this word, beloved. 
you are beloved. Do you know how much you are loved by God? The whole story of scripture is the story of a God who loves you and wants to be in relationship with you and pains himself when he sees self-destructive behavior, does not want you to die in your sins, but he wants to be in communion with you. So he sends the thing he loves the most, his only begotten son, to bridge the gap so that now we can have fellowship and union with him. This is the beauty of the gospel. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you grew up in the church, you've heard hundreds of messages like this, I get it. It's easy to grow numb to it. But I am convinced that the beginning, the middle, and the end of living a life with God is rooted in how confident you are in the nature, extent, and cost of God's love for you. You know, oftentimes when we talk about God dwelling in us, it's more theologically accurate. It's the spirit dwelling in us, right? Pastor Tom talked about how Jesus promised, I'm going to go away, but the spirit's going to come. And if you look at the work of the spirit, one of the primary things the Spirit does, according to Romans, is he makes you confident that you are a child of God, right? It says the Spirit cries, Abba, Father. He reminds you of how loved you are. And nothing pains the Spirit living within you if you're a Christian sitting here today more than when you are living your days in insecurity. Trying to find satisfaction and life in areas that's only going to bring you disappointment. And so that being said, Christians sitting here today, are you convinced of God's love for you? Like really ask that. And does your life reflect that? Do you actually believe that God loves you? Do you believe how much God loves you? And do you see yourself as beloved in God's eyes? Now obviously a lot of us don't. Some of us, we believe God loves us or we say God loves us. But John would say your love for others is so cold. And so detached from what agape love is that you probably need to relook at how you understand the love of God. John would say that. Some of us have a hard time believing we're loved because there are some explicit, tangible mistakes we have made. And we've taken our eyes off the cross. We've focused on those mistakes and we think this is irredeemable. I am not lovable. Others of us think we're not lovable because that's what we've been told our whole life. And it's absolutely formative. People made us feel not lovable. We've been shown that we're not lovable. And that is where the gospel needs to start, friends. Don't start with read your Bible and pray. Start with the fact that all of redemptive history is a story of a heavenly father who has sent his only son Jesus so that you would know that he loves you. And if you have trouble answering any of those questions, the answer is to look to the cross, the Christian journey of maturity, and we're so tempted to think this all the time. It is not a graduation away from the gospel message. It is a continual move towards the cross to get a deeper, more profound experience and understanding of the beauty of the gospel message. That's why Ephesians 3, Paul makes a lot of sense. He's like, what can I pray for for Christians? What do they really need? And here's what he says. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love, verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You know, I've stopped praying for your external needs, friends. I hate to admit it. You know why? They are never ending. <laughs> oh, I need a new job. Oh, I lost that job. Hey, I'm not trivializing that, Okay. Uh, oh, man, I, I, I need this or I need that or God's not coming through here. God's not coming through there. I've stopped 
praying on those things because those are surface level. I've started to adjust my prayers to say, let them know that they are secure in your love. Job or not, good season or not, suffering or not, they are secure in your love. That's what the Christian needs. and That's what the world needs more than anything else. And so in light of the explanation and call to love, just a simple applications. Uh, I've been asking myself this a lot more these days. Um, how has your love for others been? Matthew is very sobering because he talks about the end times, and I think we're living in them. He says one marker of the end times is that the love of many will grow cold. Is that not the trajectory and drifting of a lot of our hearts? When did our love become so cold? Life beats you down. You become hardened. You become jaded. And what happens is this heart that was maybe more generous and, and cheerful and willing to love now becomes rock hard and solid. And you no longer experience and know the love of Christ, nor do you have the capacity to extend it. Now, how do you combat that? This is, I think, where we have to realize the idea of God living in us. It's not this weird spiritual thing that we just kind of contrive. The Bible paints the spirit living in us as a very normal, ordinary, daily battle to fight our flesh and to live like Christ. That's literally it. So tomorrow you wake up, you meet a coworker or someone in your family and they're hard to love and you tell yourself, Lord, fill me with your love. Remind me that I am beloved so that I can extend your love. That's the spirit working and dwelling in you. It's not this weird super saiyan power that comes upon you, but it is literally the spirit of God normally, ordinarily journeying with you as you strive to be faithful in that. And so take some time to reflect if that is God through his spirit calling you to simply grow in your love with those around you. Maybe it's the person who's hurt you. Maybe it's the spouse that's wronged you, whoever it might be. Maybe, it, or maybe nobody comes to mind. The most practical illustration or example for a lot of us is just going to be community groups. Community groups, that it would be a place that we, instead of going to receive, our primary MO is we are here to give. We are to he here to give our love. And I've always said that the beauty of Christian, the, the equation of Christian community is like if everybody goes to receive, people would be disappointed. If everybody goes to give, everybody's filled. <laughs> it's just if the Spirit would only grant us that mentality. That's one. Second, maybe uh, something that needs to be brought up more that I'm convicted of is I I'm personal belief that for some of us, what's in order is repentance. Repentance. Are there any hidden or unrepentant sins in your life that the Spirit is just nudging and nudging and tugging and saying, this is your, your obstacle and your blockage to experience fellowship with me and to stop this self-destructive behavior and is breaking communion and fellowship with God and it is grieving the spirit within you and understand, apply the balm of the gospel to that. It's repentance. And maybe it's lasted so long, but realize there is nothing that lasts too long or is too bad or too evil to not be covered by the blood of Christ. And I think that's the perfect day for us today because that's what communion is. <laughs> it is a time to reflect and be restored in fellowship and communion with God. And lastly, if you're not a Christian... I guess the question I would ask in, in reflection is, how do you satisfy the fundamental human need for security and love? Because I think that the Christian Bible will tell you that there is a God who is loving, who has made a path and creates you and invites you into fellowship and relationship with him 
if you had recognized your need for him in Christ. And so let's pray together as we go into time celebrating the Lord's Supper.